Please have Jonah chapter 4 open as we come to study it together this evening. Uh, Each of our uh, four studies in the book of Jonah have begun with the letter R. Chapter 1 we summarized with the word rebellion. Chapter 2 was summarized with repentance. Chapter 3 this morning, revival. And this evening, chapter 4, we can, uh, I was struggling, I have to confess, to get a fourth R for this chapter. But I've gone with resistance, resistance. There's nothing more satisfying than when a story finishes with a good ending. Uh, You put down the murder mystery novel or you walk out of the cinema screening and you say, that was really good. I liked how it all came together. I liked how it ended. And that being the case, you might be disappointed when you read the end of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 doesn't seem like a very satisfying ending at all. It's perhaps one of the most abrupt and, and most, one of the strangest endings of any book in Scripture. And it's perhaps especially disappointing after what we've witnessed in the previous two chapters. In chapter 2 we saw Jonah uh, come to an end of himself, convicted over his sin uh, as he faced death in the, in the seas. And then was graciously <coughs> rescued by the fish that God appointed and miraculously rescued. Then we saw this morning in chapter 3 how God brought revival through the preaching of Jonah in the city of Nineveh. What, what could be more encouraging uh, as, as Christians and certainly as a preacher? What, would, what could be better than to see such a great response to the preaching of the word? But then we come to chapter 4, the climax of the book. And Jonah just seems to be back to his old self. He's in a huff. He's angry at God. He's, he's acting like a spoiled brat. It seems like a very disappointing ending. But it's worth remembering as we come to terms with the conclusion of this book that as most of the commentators point out, the most likely person to have written the book of Jonah is Jonah himself. Under the direction and command of the Holy Spirit, he has finished his book with great honesty by showing us what he was like, by showing us his very human faults and limitations. He's confessing to us what he's like, he was like and he's warning us not to be like he was. In this chapter we see the prophet again resisting God or trying to resist God. Our will, our plans, our priorities often collide with those of God. Because even for Christians there is lingering sin and selfishness in our lives Whereas God is flawless and holy and good. And isn't it such a a humbling experience that often we might begin to think that we've made great progress in some particular area of our Christian lives. Only to have to be humbled by God all over again. And shown that there is still more work to be done. And so we want to see this clash, this collision uh, and this resistance between Jonah and God here in in Jonah chapter 4. And in Jonah, we will likely see uh, something of ourselves. And so first of all, we see tonight from this chapter, our anger and God's patience. Our anger and God's patience. Twice we read in this chapter that Jonah was angry with God. Look at verse 1. How does Jonah react to Nineveh's repentance? Now it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And the language in the original is even stronger. The word here means 
It was disgraceful to Jonah. One commentator actually says you could translate it. This was abhorrent. This was disgusting to Jonah. The repentance of the Ninevites. Who or what is is making Jonah so angry? Who is making him feel so appalled here? Well, God is. God in his grace. God in his love. God in his patience with undeserving sinners. Look what Jonah says in verses 2 to 4. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is absolutely furious with God for being such a good God. The word he uses there, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, uh, that was the, the classic way that the Israelites understood their God. You remember this was how God had uh, revealed himself through Moses to the people. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This was the, the classic understanding of God held by faithful God-fearing Israelites. The thing is that Jonah and probably like, like many other Israelites of his generation and previous generations, they assumed that God was just gracious and merciful to them. That he wasn't a God who had any concern to be gracious and merciful to others. And so it suited Jonah very well that God was slow to anger with him and abounding in steadfast love with him. But he is furious with God. For being slow to anger with the Ninevites. Assyrians. Jonah is so angry about this that he says in verse 3 he just wants to die. It's hard to know if he's really being serious there. If he's just speaking in hyperbole. But he says it again in verse 9. He's so angry and upset. Or sorry in verse 8. He's so angry and frustrated at the situation. Now, how does God respond to all this anger from Jonah? How would you respond? How have you responded to maybe little children when they have acted petulantly and thrown a strop? Well, look at verse 4. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Or you could say, you could translate it, Have you any right to be angry? And again in verse 9, God says, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? See how patient God is here with Jonah. We'll see that God does not hold back from correcting him and rebuking him. But he could have struck Jonah down dead here for this act of uh, petulance against God's decrees and God's commands. Believer or not, Jonah is, is disrespecting God. He is showing no concern for the plan of God and the purposes of God. But God is patient with Jonah. Perhaps as surprising as Jonah's anger is, God's patience is even more surprising. Jonah angrily resists God and his ways. God responds with patience and mercy. Yes, he does correct him. Yes, there's a bit of pain here for Jonah. But it could have been a lot more pain given the attitude that he has. 
We're all sinful, we're all flawed. And when sinful, flawed people come into contact with a a sinless, flawless, perfect God, there is a collision. There is resistance. Think of Jesus in his ministry. He angered a lot of people pretty regularly in the Gospels. The people he angers the most are the religious people. The most respectable, educated, uh, looked up to people. Why? Because he exposed their sin for all their learning and for all their respect. They still had a lot of sanctifying to go through. And when God exposes our sin, sometimes it may make us angry. I wonder, is there something about God or something God has done that angers you sometimes? Is there something about him or his ways that you resist? Now, we would probably never, never put it that way. We'd probably never say to each other, God's making me really angry today. But perhaps there is a, an unspoken anger. Do we ever feel anger or resentment, for example, when we see churches that perhaps don't emphasize the preaching of the word or churches that perhaps we think, well, that, we don't see any, any reason in the scriptures for doing that or saying that or believing that. And yet those churches may grow more so than some of ours. Perhaps in resentment we think, why not us? Does God anger us when things in our life don't happen at just the time we want or in just the way we want? God, I know you're sovereign. I know your timing is best. I know your ways aren't my ways. But why for once can things not just happen when I want them to happen or in the way that I want them to happen? I worked hard for that promotion. Why didn't I get it? I had a plan for the next year of my studies or for the next week in my diary. What was wrong with it? Why didn't it come about? Maybe we get angry at our country. The people in power who make decisions, in a sense, were right to be angry about some of the laws that are passed, some of the the, the godless attitude that goes on in in regard to the lawmaking process in our nation, the things that are celebrated that we, we should be ashamed of, the things that should be enforced that are ignored. But if anger just leads us to complaining and gossiping about and insulting our leaders, we're angry with God because he's the one who has put them there and he has told us to pray for them, not just for those who may be believers, but for all of our leaders and not just to complain about them. Jonah was angry because he was a sectarian. And if it's not too strong a word to use, he seems to have been a bit of a racist. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place because he hated the Ninevites. He thought God was just for his people and no one else. And when we find out how and when God angers us, friends, it it will expose to us perhaps some of the, the idols in our lives because, of course, We are never right to be angry with God. And yet God is so patient with us. There's a word that's used for patience in Hebrew, sometimes used of God. And if you were to take it literally, it means long in the nose. What does that mean? Well, it's a picture, of course. Uh, You've maybe heard the expression that someone's nostrils flared. They were so angry that their nostrils flared. Somebody hears something and... It's just an expression comes upon them and they take a big inhale of breath before they let rip. 
Well, Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, God is slow to anger, meaning it takes, again, it's a picture, but it takes his nostrils a long time to flare. And that's what we see with Jonah. I'm sure if we were honest about it and thought about it, we would say that there have been many times in our lives when God was very slow to anger. How often has he been patient when we don't deserve it? How often are we so quick to get angry with no good reason? And he would have every good reason, but he remains patient. Often when we have been resisting God, he is gracious with us and he confronts us and he, he is pruning us and he is sanctifying us and he is making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whatever angers or frustrates you about God, admit that to him today and be thankful that he is slow to get angry with you as he was slow to be angry with Jonah and even indeed with the Ninevites. Our anger and God's patience. Secondly, in this chapter, we see our selfishness and God's sovereignty. Our selfishness and God's sovereignty. If you look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Why is Jonah doing this? Why is he sitting, why is he sitting outside the city and just watching it? Well, it seems, friends, that he's still holding out some hope that Nineveh will be flattened. He's still hoping that despite everything that's happened, he's still going to get to see the sequel to Sodom and Gomorrah and that God is going to destroy the Ninevites after all. How selfish is that? Jonah was more than happy to receive God's grace and mercy when he needed it, but in his judgment, he doesn't think the Ninevites deserve it. Even though God saved Jonah out of the storm, he doesn't think the Ninevites deserve to be saved out of their sin. And so he makes himself a little booth. We assume he would have done this with rocks or branches or whatever might have been lying around. But in some ways, this is a little booth of his own purity and his own self-righteousness. And he just sits there by himself in a huff. But as Jonah sits in the sun, he needs some shade. He's sitting in modern day Iraq. Uh, The sun getting hotter and hotter as the day goes on. Uh, He has no roof over his head. And God here miraculously and very graciously we're told. Appoints a plant and a big leafy plant to cover Jonah's head. And to give him some shade. Some of your translations will name the plant as, as a gourd. Which is a plant that can grow incredibly quickly even in a day. It's very very broad leaves. And so it would have done the job here but... Regardless of that, the point is that God put this plant here at just the time that Jonah needed it. Now look at the end of verse 6. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is all very strange at first reading. This is the only time in the whole book that you read of Jonah being happy. And that's when he's sitting under a big leafy plant. Why is he suddenly happy? Not because thousands of people perhaps have repented and begun worshipping his God, but because he has some shade. He has some shelter. He has some comfort to keep him happy for as long as he determines that he should keep this pity party going. What a very selfish man. But just when Jonah is happy and comfortable, God appoints a worm, verse 7, and a scorching wind, in verse 8, 
And suddenly, because of God, Jonah's comfort is gone as soon as it came. His happiness is destroyed and he's presumably hot and exhausted and angry and selfish all over again. The key word really in the the whole book in some ways, but certainly here in chapter 4, is that word appointed as it's translated in the ESV. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Verse 7, God appointed a worm. Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. God is in control of every little detail that happens to Jonah. God also appointed the storm in chapter 1 and he appointed the fish in chapter 2. We keep reading this word all throughout the book. And the message to Jonah could not be clearer. Whatever you think your priorities are, whatever you think is most important, I am God and you are not. I am sovereign and you are not. And I, I will give salvation when and how I choose, despite of whatever sectarian or racist Priorities you may hold. And my sovereignty. And my plans. And my purposes. Trump. Your comfort. And your shade. And your selfishness. We live in a culture that has made it all about us. Every good advertising slogan that you see. Has a little three letter word in the heart of it. You. You can choose the phone that is right for you. You deserve the best car you can get. You are worth it. You are beautiful. You, you, you. And what can happen very easily, and let's face it, it has happened to a large extent, is that we do what Jonah did and we build little booths for ourselves. Little shelters away from the world and the world's problems and the world's sin. And we just sort of nestle down and see to ourselves. And like Jonah, we can fool ourselves into thinking that our priorities are all that matters. And that we know better than God. And that rather than sacrifice ourselves any longer in the service of God or for people who just tend to annoy us, we're just going to sit in peace and let the world do what it likes. And friends, when something that entertains us or something that makes us comfortable or something that makes us happy or when some hobby or relationship or personal interest, when some of these things make us more glad than what we have in Christ and more glad than submitting to God's sovereignty and adhering to God's plan and serving in God's purposes, then that something or that someone is a silly plant That God may rip out of our hands. Some of you maybe know the story. It's probably been repeated many times. The story that John Piper has in his book. Don't waste your life. About the old couple who took early retirement in America. And moved to Florida. And they said that the reason they moved to Florida. Was because they liked to walk on the beach every day. And collect shells. And Piper says. Imagine that couple. Standing before the Lord when he returns in judgment and saying, Lord, look at all my shells. Jesus says, do not store up treasure on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. 
Enjoy friends, enjoy family and sport and holidays and these wonderful gifts that God gives. We're thankful for them all. But be far more excited and concerned and willing to sacrifice for the opportunities we have to serve in the kingdom of God. (coughs) Stuff with which we fill our homes will all perish and fade. Instead of getting overly attached to it, we're to make some deposits in the kingdom of Jesus Christ where nothing will ever perish or fade. And we are to submit ourselves to God's sovereignty rather than pursuing our selfishness. So we see here uh, our anger and God's patience. We see our selfishness and God's sovereignty. And thirdly and finally, uh, we see in this chapter a, a clash between our agenda and God's mission. Our agenda and God's mission. When we have an agenda, we have a goal that we're working to. We have a set of goals and tasks that we want to achieve. And that can be a very good thing. If you arrive at a meeting and there's no agenda, the meeting's going to be a bit of a mess. and It's going to take ages and it's going to waste everybody's time. But sometimes people have hidden agendas. They have their own selfish objectives and goals that they're not quite willing to share at first. And Jonah's had his own agenda this entire book. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 4. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Notice that. In my country. This is his sectarianism coming out again. There's a sense in which this whole book, Jonah has been thinking to himself, what is God doing sending me out of Israel? Jonah was alive at a time when the spiritual state of Israel was not good. These were the days of the the wicked and foolish kings of the northern kingdom. People like Jeroboam II and others like him who continued to promote Baal worship and idolatry. And Jonah was perhaps thinking to himself, God, my nation needs seen too. What are you doing sending me to this other nation? Jonah's agenda has sent him spiraling down into self-pity and resentment. But in the closing verses, God presents his Mission, his agenda to Jonah. Look what God says in verses 10 and 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The plant was important to Jonah, terribly important. But God says to Jonah, how you feel about a plant is how I feel about people. God is saying here to Jonah, I have far more reason to care for Nineveh than you do to care for your plant. You didn't make your plant, I made Nineveh. You didn't cause your plant to grow, I caused Nineveh to grow. Your plant is a plant. Nineveh is a city with hundreds of thousands of people who have never had anyone explain to them the need for repentance of sin and worship of God. And notice what else God says to Jonah. What about the cattle? What about the cattle, Jonah? Can we at least get you to care about the Ninevite cattle, even if you don't care about the Ninevite people? After all, cattle are more valuable than plants. Cattle eat plants like the one that's been keeping you in the shade. 
Can we at least get you to see that the cattle of Nineveh are worth more than your plant? What God's really saying is to Jonah, your agenda is resisting my mission. You're concerning yourself with things that you should not be so quite so concerned with. You're concerned with your agenda instead of my mission. Notice in verse 11, God describes Nineveh as that great city. Four times in the book, Nineveh is described as a great city. Yes, it was a sinful city. It was a wicked city. But it was a great city in the sense that there were lots and lots of men and women and boys and girls there made in the image and likeness of God who needed to know that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and who forgives wickedness and sin. God says to Jonah, should I, should you not pity such a place? That's God's agenda. That's God's mission, friends. Showing pity to human souls. The most famous Bible verse in the world reminds us of that. John three sixteen. God so loved the world. He pitied the world. He had compassion on the world that he gave his only son. God saw us in our need. And he pitied us enough to do something about it. The book of Jonah is the only book of the whole Bible to close with a question, as far as I'm aware. Should I not pity Nineveh, or at least the cattle of Nineveh? And it's interesting, isn't it, again, if you think of the fact that Jonah probably wrote this book at a later date when he had changed in his thinking and matured by the help of the Holy Spirit. But we don't know how Jonah answered that question. We don't know what Jonah did when he got up from this little pity party whether he went back into Nineveh, whether he continued to serve God. But it's a question for you and for me. Do we have the pity of God for this broken world? Do we have the pity of God for family members, friends, neighbours, all these thousands of houses around us in this town? Or are we so comfortable in our booths with our plants? That we really don't care that much. The worst thing they could say about Jesus while he was on the earth was that he was a friend of sinners. Because he was always hanging around with people who needed the gospel. Tax collectors and prostitutes and whoever else. That's because Jesus' agenda was God's mission. Pity for the lost. Peter says in his second epistle, God is... Patient with this world, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Do you ever wonder, I certainly do sometimes, why doesn't God just finish it? Is the world not a big enough mess? Have we not seen enough horrendous injustice and perversion and immorality and idolatry? Why doesn't he just finish it? Jesus, just come back now. No more sin, no more struggle, no more suffering. Well, one of the reasons he waits is for more people to be saved. Aren't you glad he didn't end the world before you and I got saved? Our outreach, our invitations, our services this week, and it's an an attempt to be about God's mission. 
to set aside our concerns for a little while and to make known the gospel. We can only invite people. It's the Lord's place to call them to, as we thought about this morning, to revive them if he wishes. He will do with the preaching of his word as he sees fit. It will never return to him void. The preaching of God's word always accomplishes exactly what he wants it to accomplish. But God often chooses to work through willing servants, willing witnesses. Are we angry? Are we, are we selfish? Are we working to our own agendas? Or are we about God's mission? Jonah has perhaps a strange ending. But it's Jonah himself saying to his friends, this is what I was like. Don't be like me. Be like Jesus. Jonah was a stubborn prophet who didn't want to serve. Jesus was a willing prophet who came not to be served, but to serve. Jonah preached a message of repentance to Nineveh. Jesus still preaches a message of repentance to all people in all nations today. Jonah wasn't willing to sacrifice himself for sinners, but Jesus sacrificed his very life for sinners. Jonah wasn't entirely devoted to God's mission, but Jesus Christ was perfectly, wholeheartedly, unfalteringly, unstoppably devoted to God's mission. Jonah spent three days as good as dead in a fish. Jesus spent three days literally dead in the grave before rising again. And so friends, Jonah, in all his failures and in all his limitations, he is a signpost to Jesus in his perfection and his accomplishments. And life in Christ will involve sometimes our sin being exposed as Jonah's sin was exposed. But he will take away that sin and he will sanctify us and he will mold us more into his own image and he by his grace will make us more about his mission than our selfish agendas. And he will be with us as we seek to continue his mission in the days to come here in Jamor and to the ends of the earth. And so may we continue our worship and witness knowing that that is what we are to be about and that is what he will bless for his glory. Amen.